Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I just got so into like, what exactly are tabletop role-playing games? What do they do well? What excites me about them? And how can I create things that bring that out for other people? And so like, that's the thing that has always been the biggest proponent for me in designing things is like, how do I create the most interesting experience for whatever this thing is? My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, today is never about me. Today, I've brought a very amazing guest. You know, this person is has been fabled throughout the series just because of one particular episode. They are game designer. They are content writer so you know if you're looking for someone to update your lore give you a little bit of extra oomph hire them uh they're also one of the many faces behind good luck press i would like to welcome to the show seb thank you hi (laughs) that's such a triumphant welcoming thank you seb is a pleasure to have you on the show Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is actually the first time I have ever been on a podcast. <laughs> shut your mouth. I get the exclusive. I, get the I can't exclusive. shut my mouth. That's a podcast. I have to talk. <laughs> uh, amazing. Well, so then, since this is your first time, feel free to go as long as you want. But would you just give okay. a brief introduction of who you are to people who may not know you or to any of the listeners who have not listened to your any or seen any of your games yet. Give an introduction of the internet. 
And also, any plugs, marketing bits, I want you to get hired, make money, let people know what they can find you for. Okay, thank you. Hello, I am Seth. As Jeremy said, I am a game designer. Uh, I'm also a writer, both for tabletop. I've done a little bit for video games. And also, I like to just dabble in fiction and interactive fiction. I love stories and I love telling them. I'm also one of the two people with Will Yopes that runs Good Luck Press. We are a small press run out of Toronto that we're just starting up. We have a lot of great games that we're looking forward to bringing you right now. We're working on my game, which is Dwelling, which is on Kickstarter right now. Very exciting. And then also Will's game, Torque, which is successfully kickstarted. They're working away at it. It will be out soon. I get to see special sneak freaks all the time because... I work with them. So it's great. It's delightful. Uh, yeah, I've, I haven't had any like very big name games before, but I've definitely created a lot of small games that have floated around through different bundles and people maybe have heard of them. Very interesting kind of, I like to create kind of curiosities of games. I think one that recently was in a bundle that people thought was pretty interesting was a solo game called, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the name of my own game. That's bad. (laughs) Uh, Portrait in a Room of Mirrors. There we go. Forgot this series of words that that needed to be for a moment. Yeah, it's a solo game that I designed that um, kind of you are in this room of mirrors and you have these like small introspective moments as you look into the mirrors and you have these very sensory based memory recollections. That game was actually an experiment of trying to feel out different ways to work in memory recollection into solo games, which then I brought into dwelling and another kind of series of games that I have. That's a fun little thing. It's a stroll playing trio pack. It's three little game zines all together. It's how to write a ghost story, reclaim and a new landscape. And they're all little eightfold zines. And so the way it works is it's a game that has the rules and how to play it in the zine together. So it gives you place to write your ghost story. It gives you a place to, in Reclaim, you draw landscapes and you draw beautiful foliage taking over the landscape. And in a new landscape, it gives you, you fold out and on the inside of the zine is a map. And so you go around and you find landscapes in your own neighborhood, in your own, wherever you are, and you draw them and then you turn them into landmarks on a new map and you create a fantasy world out of your neighborhood. So those were kind of just like fun ways to think about the structures of zines and the structures of games and giving you a little completely self-contained experience that you could put in your pocket when you go for a walk. Oh, <laughs> oh this is going to be so good. Uh, it's amazing because uh, mainly we're going to be talking about dwellings today, possibly also as like a Kickstarter bump here. So I'm hoping that if you're listening please go support the game. Go back it. It's great. I, I've i had the pleasure of being able to read through it. I myself uh, am going to throw some dollars at this because only success is the, <laughs> is the way for here. Um, but in, in hearing about that game and reading Dwellings, it seems like you almost have a natural intuition towards... Maybe sort of a trite word, but like an immersive experience for the person participating in your game. When when I was reading yeah. 
dwellings. I don't want to give, uh, there's more that I want to get into that I don't want to get to in this section. <laughs> I'm going to try to, to not spoiler, but it is such a great combination of like instructional tech that really puts you inside the fictional space. As, as far as my reading is, is, or my projection on the reading is concerned, I felt very walking through the haunted house. Spoiler, it's you're in a haunted house. But yeah, I think that that hearing about that game, hearing about that bundle, it just, have how, sorry, my mind moves at like 10,000 miles an hour. So I answer my own questions very quickly. But what... Why immersion? Why like why this natural intuition immersion? Like, what are you looking for when you create games like this? So, it makes me very happy to say that I can make immersive experiences because I would be upset if I was bad at that because I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> so, I have a very interesting background in that I am not new to games, but I am new-ish to tabletop games. I've been a player and a fan for a while, but I haven't gotten to designing it until the last few years. But before that, I had a background in video games, new media, and installation art. And I actually did my bachelor's in material arts. So I have a background in textiles, in sculpture, in uh, printmaking, that's kind of my big thing, especially why I'm drawn to tabletop is because I love books. I love printed ephemera. And so it's the perfect place for me to create an experience with books and with ephemera. Um, so there was a perfect kind of like colliding a lot of a lot of passions for me. But yeah, I've had a, this background in cr- just trying to create immersive experiences. And it's it's hard to explain how you were able to do it, but everything is very sensory based. And I think that's the best way to like really create an immersive experience. Cause you, a lot of people can maybe see this in dwelling in the way that I describe how you ex- experience a room. A lot of it is very sensory forward from the, uh, dwelling is very interesting. And that is also written in the first person. And so you're already like being put into this narrative, put into this game in a first person perspective, reading these like kind of flow of thought of someone experiencing a room and experiencing a ghost, experiencing a memory. And so that's kind of, I can draw from like my own experiences of being a person in a body who has done things and to be able to like extrapolate to like, Oh, what would it feel like to meet a really gross ghost or be in a very spooky house because I know because I'm a person who's I grew up in a very spooky house so I know I know what they feel like (laughs) oh I love that I can't oh I can't wait to get into it but before that as an additional icebreaker also hey listeners I may put this at the beginning of the episode but in case I forget there's construction happening above me so if you hear (laughs) sounds it's that and this episode is being sponsored by this roofing company because they get to say so but as an additional icebreaker for the listeners here what's been sort of you talked about that you have a little bit more of a video game background but like what's been your journey up to being a tabletop game designer like what was maybe the first game that sort of got you into the industry or into the hobby? And then what was maybe the first thing that also primed your brain and be like, Ooh, I could, I could make a little, a little something. I could write something up. Could you, could you walk (laughs) us through that, that journey? 
Yeah, I feel like I had a very atypical introduction to role-playing games since I do know that a lot of people's intro is playing D&D and having your youth D&D group. There was a D&D group in my high school I was not allowed to play because I hung out with one of the guys in the group's girlfriend and we were if we were in the room with the boys playing D&D and we were too rowdy we were not allowed to join the D&D group because we would not take it seriously. So I never got a chance to play a D&D in high school because apparently I would never have taken it too seriously. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, it's a very funny experience to like n- n- be banned from a high school D&D group because I would not have taken it too seriously. and would have been too rowdy. <laughs> I don't know. I just like to... It was, I was a teenager. I just wanted to have fun. Who... <laughs> I'm going to scream <laughs> yeah. coming off mute to say how ridiculous that is. <laughs> ah! Anyways, sup, continue. Yeah, but I ended up ha- having a much better, more fun experience later on. And my, I think I was probably 20 at this time. I had made some new friends who are largely involved in video games. And then one of them was like, hey, some of us also like tabletop games. Would you like to play one? I was like, oh, I don't. I've heard of this, but I've never played one. And so a friend of mine, he set up a, for mostly new players, a World of Darkness Changeling the Lost game. And so that was my introduction. And it was so much fun. He ended up in wanting everyone to have a good time, be like, we're going to make this more story focused. We're not going to care too much about nitty gritty rules and stats and stuff because we just want to have a fun time together. And he really understood that getting new players into a game if you can really hook them at fun role-playing and being a character and a story, they will learn to appreciate crunchier stuff later on, but you kind of don't want to scare someone away with be like, and you have to have a, buy a whole bunch of dice and you have to learn how to do math really fast. And so that group was really fun. We had played like this very grim, dark Changeling the Lost uh, campaign that ended up expanding And so at first it was just a small group of like four new players. And by the end, before it eventually just unfortunately dissolved, there was about a dozen people that was equally split up between new queer players, uh, a bunch of boring guys that only wanted to play D&D and were kind of mad that we were in character too much and were telling too many stories and they were mad that we weren't rolling enough dice. And then incredibly seasoned LARPers who... Um, could just like steal a seed could make the game so fun for us and i was just like eventually unfortunately the campaign dissolved because a whole chunk of people left because they're like we just want to roll dice we don't care anymore and then the larpers got too busy with their larps and so eventually the game disbanded and but it was so fun and i was just like oh these larpers are so cool i want to go hang out with them at the bar where they're drinking imaginary drinks because they do it they look so cool and they're having so much fun And so it was kind of nice to have just like these like seasoned LARPers and like queer tabletop players like take me under their wing and be like, we know what you like and we'll show you what you like. Don't worry about the weird guys in the corner playing D&D that just want to roll dice. We know what you want. And and that was my introduction. And I eventually later on did play D&D with friends. And then we all got bored of it eventually because we just wanted to do things that there was just too... There's 
there a point with a system where you're trying to change too much of it to fit what you want to do that you're like, we can just be playing a different game. We should just play a different game. So we've been playing different games. And since then, we've played a bunch of different games. I used to run the like kind of like one shots for everyone where I was just like, today we're learning a new system in one go. Let's go. And so that kind of helps my game group get learn a lot more new systems really fast. And now we're just like, what do we got? What can we play? Let's run with it. And it's really nice to be there now. <laughs> oh, God, I want what you have. <laughs> I want what you have. If my players are listening, I don't actually think any of them listen to this podcast yet, which is unfortunate. But, you know, let's do the, the one shot learning weekend. You know what I'm saying? Let's just let's just do the dang thing. That that sounds very amazing. What was what was the first game that sort of got you to design or what was the first idea that sort of percolate uh, percolated within you and got you to design like tabletop games? Yeah, I think for me, it was being able to play a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games because that was a structure that like, okay, here is a lot of games that are built on this like base structure. And with the one shot like group, that way we couldn't like learn games really quickly because it's like, okay, it's just kind of different changes, but a lot of the same core like math and how things function works. So like, as I started like looking at more systems and understanding things, I'm like, oh, Okay, yeah, maybe maybe I can do this. And so there is a local games not for profit here in Toronto that I am a part of. I've been volunteering and organizing with for eight years now called Damage at DMG. And it's focusing on helping get it's mostly video game focused, but the last few years they've been trying to get more tabletop stuff. And I've been part of one of the co-organizers that does all the tabletop programming for, for them. And so the lovely Shellcon put on this really great workshop of like, here's how you can get into designing like adventure modules for, for games. Cause they had just come out with one of their, like, I think that might've been when the corruption of Polaris just came out or was about to come out. And so they did this like really great run through of like, here's a bunch of different kinds of structures of games. And here's how you can think about like designing add-ons for games. It wasn't specifically how to design a game itself. And so that like little game jam that was in a weekend, I ended up writing a dungeon world module and then designing my own small kind of game experience while also designing a game with a friend. And so I just got so excited. I made like, two and a half things in that weekend. I was like so excited. And then since then, it's just been like, okay, what can I do? Like, and having that background in games and like video games and like interactive fiction, I was already primed for thinking in games and thinking in experiences. So I was just like, okay, so what about, I just got so into like, what exactly are tabletop role-playing games? What do they do well what excites me about them and how can I create things that bring that out for other people? And so like, that's the thing that has always been the biggest proponent for me in designing things is like, how do I create the most interesting experience for whatever this thing is? I mean, that was going to be basically answer my next question, which was, you know, (laughs) what is, I guess I'll still ask it anyways in case there's a couple extra things, but I think you've mostly hit the nail on the head. But, you know, I want people to learn about you, so maybe there's something deeper. As sort of this transitionary period of, I mean, first of all, do you still do video game work? I do it occasionally. I haven't 
done like a more video video game outside of like occasionally contributing writing and like art stuff to game jams with friends, mostly because it's just like, it's a lot. I created a like walking simulator game that eventually it's, it's a very cool thing. I'm very happy that I made it, but like the process of making it was just by myself was so much that I was just like, Oh, I need to dial back how much of like, if I'm going to be a solo creator, like how much I'm going to do, because I made this like very short walking simulator. You can, it's on my itch page. If people are interested, it's called light camping. And I did everything myself. And when I say I did everything, I programmed it. I did all the 3d modeling. I did all the music, all, all the things for it. And that was like a really great experience, but also it was just like, it was a lot of work for something that is like a 10 minute experience. It has some level of replayability. If you ever just like, I just want to listen to some nice lo-fi music and walk around like a neon pastoral island. But it was actually built to be part of an installation. And the reason why it's called light camping is because you play it in a tent. I bring it to like conventions and festivals and stuff. And so you play it with, I have this big pillow controller that looks like mossy stones and so the way that you play the game and the way that you walk around the islands is there's this touch based pillow controller that you touch to move and look around and locate it's like this big mossy stone pillow controller and so you're in this tent like actual camping tent there's fairy lights inside and there's like this lo-fi soundtrack that fills the tent and it's projected inside the tent on the back of the tent you're playing with a mossy pillow and you just have this like it was built because i've gone to so many video game conventions i think like i've had so many just like moments of being like so stressed out at like i remember at one point i was like at pax east i was like i just need a quiet corner And there wasn't one. And I was just like, I need a quiet space, please. And so I was just like, what if I made a game that was intentionally just a quiet reprieve that could be put in these very busy, busy places? So anyone that's like, I'm stressed out, I need to take five. And you could just take five and then go in this tent that's like a little soundproofed because I write blankets over it um, to make sure no light gets in. And it helps with the projection, but it also helps with the sound. And so you just go into this nice little tent and you have this nice little moment. You listen to very meditative, soft, lo-fi music and you look at a very beautiful, there's a sunset that loops on the island and you can just walk around and look at stuff. And it was supposed to be just like this very chill reprieve from like busy conventions, busy festivals. And so like that was so fun for me to build, but also it's just a lot of work and also bringing like installation work I got good at it after a while of like, I can fit the whole installation into two duffel bags and enough to be a carry on in planes. And I can jet off to places. At one point I went to LA for a weekend, showed it off and then had to go home and move. And that was really rough. So I got really good at it, but it's like, that's just like a lot of like video games and installation work. And I'm like, what is something that's a bit more sustainable for me as a creator as well? So it's like games that have, high immersion great replayability but also just like for me it's like easy for me to like really put myself into it in a way that's not gonna burn me out because that's very important to me as a creator is like i want to create things that are sustainable for players but also sustainable for me because i don't ever want to make something that i'm just like i can't keep showing this game because i can't 
keep just hauling stuff places and showing it off. And I'm so tired. <laughs> like I've gotten really good at it. Like I can now because of it set up a tent in under five minutes. <laughs> I can set up the whole installation in under 15 minutes, which some people are like, Oh, they'll show up and be like, Oh, do you need help with this? I'm like, don't worry. I got this. And they'll just watch me set up a tent and a projector and a whole video game. And it's like a sound system. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I've done this so many times. <laughs> oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, don't talk to me, Chief. I'm I'm in the zone. I can do this by myself. Holy shit. I feel like we could just unpack that for the rest of the episode. A uh, couple of follow-up questions is that. One, for a process like that, how how long was like the creation period for that it was like it was about i'd say like nine months it took me like a six solid months of just like almost full time ish working on just the game to finish it all up while also going to school full time a bad thing that i've had to do is like being a working artist be like all right i'm finishing up my undergrad and also i need to show this game at three different like festivals this summer while i'm doing summer school and so i've like unfortunately pushed myself past my limits a few times in like getting things done but yeah it was just like working on the game itself and doing all the work it was took me months luckily the actually building the installation thing was not as long as a process of just like figuring out what worked. But the funny thing about things like that and I guess games in general, it's like it's an iterative iterative process. So every single time I have set up that it, that installation, I have learned to do it better. And that's kind of like a fun thing with like games and stuff is like every time you design a new one or with especially with like playtesting and things, every time you like look at something having all the knowledge up to that point, you're like, oh, here's how I can do things better. Here's how things can go be easier for me or easier for others and like, or more interesting or nicer, or you kind of like have all that accumulative knowledge that like, it, it never goes away. It just like, you can learn things each time you do it. So I, yeah, I perfected the like nice tent setup after a while, but like the first one was a little jank, but it took me about like three months to figure out like what is good with like spatial, spatial limitations and like conventions and like right kind of like blackout curtains that didn't crumple the tent and like how to make sound good. Yeah. I had one curtains that were like too heavy. And so like I threw them on and just the whole tent just collapsed and I was like, uh Oh, this isn't going to work. So it's just like <laughs> having to like a lot of trial and error over time and figuring it out. Oh, you're a superstar. That's all I have to say. I mean, that's how I, how I see you. I don't know you. I don't know you. We're meeting for the first. You're a superstar. It's disgusting how amazing you are. Truly disgusting. I'm upset. No, that's a very amazing thing. And to also kind of have it from a place of slight altruism as well, in that you sort of create a, a safety zone for somebody, right? Both in terms of like, Mental, mental fatigue, spiritual fatigue, physical fatigue, like hitting pretty much all the, the trifecta of the human experience. But in a, di I mean, I know this is not something you're probably wanting to do, but I also imagine a version of this where like 
people can hire you for this tent and like just have their <laughs> own like back. Like I imagine like the backyard camping, right? And I what I first thought of in comparison is like all those stupid like wine trucks that they have for weddings nowadays, like the wine food truck things oh. that like post up in barns and shit. But like, what if that was just like this really cool lo-fi installation tent like that? Listen, I can't say that I wouldn't think about putting it in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did bring it one time to a music festival. I unfortunately was not able to set it up because it rained the whole festival. And they were like, unfortunately, we cannot let you put electronics outside in the rain. And we'd have no other options for you. And I was like, ah, that's okay. But uh, yeah, I've, it's, it's definitely, I've set it up sometimes just for myself. I, at one point I've done that. I've just been like set it up and I'm like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to be in my tent for a little bit. I'm just going to go chill in my tent. I'm going to have myself a nice quiet time. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it so much. Wow. Great. Well, if everyone, if you're listening, you're not sold yet. Start being sold because we haven't even talked about the game. <laughs> let's talk about the game, Seb. Let's dive yeah. into it. Let's, let's rip into dwelling. So would you just give a brief introduction of of what you're doing when you get your hands on dwelling after the Kickstarter, of course, go back it. (laughs) Yeah. So dwelling is a solo game and it's a little bit weird in a solo game in that it's a story and it's also a game. So the way what happens, you'll open it up and you'll read some rules about how you play the game. There's a few different sort of, interaction mechanics with it of you'll be either conjuring or summoning ghosts you'll be recalling memories and then those interactions of with the ghosts and the memories that they bring up when they're conjured you'll be left marked by that which in that case that is either with marker or just with the pressure of your own finger you'll be like marking your body to like mark those interactions and so it'll give you a bit of a breakdown of like how that how that works and then also explain to you that it's a story and that the prompts for the game are actually embedded into the story so the way it works is you'll once you get to the story part it will read as a story written from the first person so you'll be reading a first person account of someone waking up from a strange dream, a little disoriented in the night, not used to this new but old house that they inherited. And you'll start hearing sounds. And so you'll be following the sounds around the house to try and figure out the source of them. And that's when you have all these different encounters in different rooms with the ghosts. And each room has a different kind of encounter with the ghosts. So there's different kind of memory sense vibe-based ghosts that are in each room that will have different prompts for you and different memory prompts and different ways that you can interact with them. I never thought of it as a legacy game, but I guess it is a legacy game. It was pointed out to me through, there's a very nice write-up about it in Dicebreaker before the Kickstarter came out. And there's like, oh, it's a legacy game. I was like, I guess it is a legacy game. I had not thought of it like that because the thing is like the way the book is structured is you are going to be drawing those ghosts that you conjure right into the book. There is room in the rooms as at that kind of serve as the canvas for you to just 
draw and then they become those ghosts become part of the story and so it's this very interesting thing of it's a story that's also a solo role-playing game but also wants this the story wants to be yours it wants to have you embedded in it as much as everything else that is in it so it kind of gives you that space and that room to draw your ghosts in to draw down little bits of like your own memories and kind of make the game yours and so you'll be left afterwards with like this story that has bits of you in it and then bits of the story which also has bits of me in it as the writer and it ends up being this very nice like collaborative story activity between me and you the player that try and creates like this nice enmesh narrative so yeah, it's it's a very interesting experience. I had a little bit of a hard time writing at first in the first person because I was so worried that people would be like, I don't understand this. And because I haven't seen other things like that. If anyone knows of any games like that, please tell me because I would love to look at them. And also like because the prompts are embedded in the story, it never like is like, okay, you walk into a room and hear la 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 la, and then it stops and it's like, and now it's time to draw a ghost. It doesn't do that. I tried to use through like very careful language and very careful describing of encounters. So it reads as a cohesive, repetitive kind of language saying, this is a prompt now, this is a time to draw a ghost, or this is a time to remember something. And that was such an interesting experience to think of like kind of like narrative design for role-playing games and like, and solo games are great for that because you have a lot more control over what a thing is. Cause you're essentially as the designer of a solo game, you're kind of like GMing experience for one, if you can think about it like that. But in this case, it's me. It's just like, I view myself as like someone who is a collaborator and wants to tell a story with the player. And so I wanted to like give enough room for that to happen but also like i didn't want it to like break character i guess of like be like i'm telling the story and then now i taught i stopped to tell you how to tell the story because i wanted i wanted maybe that voice and that tone and that kind of like uh flow of thought to maybe lead into the player's writing so it'll become like a much more cohesive and flowy story at the end even though it is the player's words because they themselves will be writing from the first person and their own train of thought. And so it just becomes this nice collective kind of like conversation of a story once it's done. I think there's so, there's so many cool things that you're doing on many different layers. I guess the first thing, it's interesting that the Dicebreaker has brought up the legacy thing. Cause even if you didn't sort of think about that way, I know that portions of the instructions of the book, like the how to play section, also mention the sort of replayability of the game, right? And so even I guess if you wouldn't give it that tag, right, legacy tag, you did have this sort of intrinsic of like you could revisit the house or if you did everything in a very like, maybe not glue way, but if like you inserted pictures or something like that for different prompts, you could just remove those and you'd have a blank house again. Like you really thought about the replayability of of the piece, which is, beautiful it it very well executed and also in terms of like you know when we think about sort of narrative design video games the first three that like come to my mind are like mass effect divinity original sin 2 and life is strange 
And I think Life is Strange has a really good way of like giving you the the option prompts to be the character and answer the questions that NPCs are giving to you. And I think why I bring that up is that you executed very well. Like at no point did I read, did I feel like I was stopping, right? Like the thing you wanted to mention that you didn't want to happen in the book is like, okay, now prompt time, stop, stop engaging with the story (laughs) and start engaging with play, play and story. were always very cohesive. So this is like, is Seb Pines also a narrative designer? Super weird. <laughs> I'm just, you know, many hats. But out at the play level, like just sort of the collage book, scrapbooking, coloring book, like play of it is very fun. Is very, very yeah. fun. Like it just brings you back to that child and wonderment. At least for me, this, you know, anything I'm saying is through my own projections and experiences. But for me, as I see it as very like child and wonderment, I know it goes through, it has much more adult tones to it. But I just think Mm -hmm. the engagement of play is very wonderful. And I mean that in like the in wonderment term, not just like the amazing term (laughs) of it. You mentioned that you sort of, is this from your, from your, sort of what is it called installation background like is were you already thinking about those things like do you do you feel like those are pieces in your games that you already sort of naturally gravitate towards creating yeah i usually with games i try and create something that like has an approachability many different kinds of like the same experience i kind of i like that kind of mutability of different experiences that can ha- be had in a singular experience yeah because like replayability and like the different ways you can interact with the book that was like a really big thing for me like one thing that i was really conscious of of, of there's just people that are going to not want to draw on the book there's people that are gonna be like this is too pretty of a book i can't draw on this book i'll never draw in this book and i'm like it's okay i got you so there's like principle like the room spreads without the text you can print them out from your printer printer friendly and you can draw into them and so you can recreate the experience and still have yourself like a nice like the same experience of like drawing things and writing but without worrying too much about ruining the book i don't think you're ruining the book if you draw on it to be clear I would like you to draw on the book. I'm very excited to see people draw on the book. But I I understand like those anxieties. I have them as well. I have there's some books that I have that are meant to be written in and I'm like I will never write these books. This is a very nice hardcover book and I will never write in this book. <laughs> I will never hurt you. I promise to protect you from this day forward. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing that was like very interesting to me with dwelling and thinking about replayability is that even if you do draw in the book, um, so long as you don't like completely fill the book, there is always space to add more ghosts. And I think that is a fun thing. And the thing with it being sort of sense-based and memory-based is the nice thing about time and getting older is you will always have more memories. (laughs) You will always have many, many more memories to fill up those pages. So a playthrough might look different the longer gaps between time that you play it. And like that, the thing is really exciting to me because like as playing, testing it, there's many times I was like, oh, here's like one kind of memory that I could go for this playthrough. And then like the next one, I was like, oh, here's a completely different one. And just like even just like the situation of, oh, in this playthrough, I'm recalling different memories or things have happened enough in the short period of time that like I have a different experience now that I can slot into this. And that's kind of nice about something that 
kind of comes from you is that you have a whole lifetime experiences to draw from and you can just as more happen or as you remember more add them into the game and all those experiences are always going to look different and especially having that kind of memory and sensory experience tied to how you visualize the ghosts i think that's also interesting because then there are some like vague descriptors of like what the ghosts look like but there's no like here is exactly how you draw it it has this many limbs and a face and it just kind of has like descriptors of like what you experience of it in like kind of like snapshots but it never gives you the whole picture and so it's up to you to take those snapshots and what your mind fills with the gaps to draw in the uh, full picture and the nice thing is like it will always look different to everyone and even you looking at it later it'll probably be different too which is kind of nice yeah there's almost uh i think you've really mastered sort of the horror lovecrafting concept of like never (laughs) describing the monster right i think when i think a horror can fall flat is when you give like the like not only the exact description of something, but also then you start to think about anatomically, okay, how, how can I fight the monster? The monster becomes less scary the more specific it becomes, right? Is is Alien really that scary once you figure out, like, what it is? Yes. Also, it's, like, slightly indestructible, but, you know, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But what I think is also very cool... I, did you do the visual layout for the book as well? Yes. So have you ever had an experience like writing like a child storybook before? No. It feels very like children's storybook. And the reason I bring this up is both in like the visual layout of the whole story, but also I imagine the version of the game where you play through, you finish filling out the book and it sort of has this, what do they call those games? Pass on games. It's like the machine it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. So like if for anyone who doesn't know, the machine is a game where like you le- you learn about the machine. It's a journal from like a mad scientist. Now you're obsessed with making the machine. You write down some stuff and eventually the machine will spoilers for the machine. I'm going to wait. <laughs> Give yourself like 45 seconds. But eventually the machine will end you in some way, whether mentally, spiritually, or physically, and you'll pass your journal that you've prompted through to someone else, they will pick up your journal and they will play. So the reason why I bring this up is that I also feel like this is very doable with dwelling because you could either A, do the storybook version where like you write and you're sort of being the illustrator for this and you can pass it on and show your conceptuals of the experiences. You could leave the note cards in there. It's almost like a mystery in a way to see how it ends because the person who's reading through is like, oh, they were thinking this on this note card. And you could like maybe add an extra like detail of like, where did you mark yourself or, or some sort of note like that. But That's a very cool version. And then also like just passing on that particular experience. And it's almost like you're visiting someone else's haunted house, right? Like if Seb were to go through the game, fill out the illustrations, put in the note cards I go through, then it's like, what am I seeing? Like what, what layers am I adding on to the same story? And then becomes this really like almost ensemble cat. It's almost like how in haunting of Hill house, a lot of the experiences in the, in yeah. the heart room was different for everyone. Right. So it'd be the same thing, at least in, in my ideas here, it's just got a lot going on for what at first glance might just be like a choose your own adventure 
like if I was to pick this up at the shelf, I was like, oh, what a cool cho- choose your own adventure game, right? But it's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper yeah. than that. Did you face, I know you had mentioned a little bit earlier that one of your challenges with, with the book was sort of inserting yourself into the storyline and also writing in the first person narrative. In in addition to that challenge, if you want to talk into it, what other like sort of right for anyone i've interviewed on the show i've never had to read this sort of a game before so this is very cool shape of shadows also comes to mind with gian shim a little bit but yeah what were some challenges in developing this game in addition to sort of the stuff that you touched on earlier yeah the tense to write it in was like the very first big challenge i first actually started writing it in the second person and like it felt too even when the prompts were embedded in the narrative it felt too instructional and i was like this is just like not the feeling i want from it i wanted it to feel more like a, a narrative like a story you're reading and so having it address the player as you and then like you are doing this and you were i was just like oh this feels like i just took a rule sentence and cut it and pasted it in the middle of my story. And I was just like, even if I try and make it sound nice, I was just kind of like, uh, and then I was like, okay, so then if I'm writing you and addressing the player as you, and I want them to write in response to the story, are they going to write you about themselves? Are they going to write I from their own perspective? I was like, okay, if I wanted it to be a story that continues it can't just go you and then switch to I. That doesn't make sense. That will be, that's not a cohesive story. I mean, it could be interesting, a story that switches tenses, but for this purpose, I'm like, that just seems confusing. And then if they are writing, they're writing about themselves in the second person, I was just like, that's kind of weird of like addressing myself as you. And I'm like, then that creates a distance from themselves and their own experiences and memories. And I'm like, that's kind of not what I want because I wanted it to be more immersive. So that kind of like that use of the tense, like really it just put a big wall. And I was just like, I was, I talked to so many people. I'm like, does this make sense? I was just like so upset about it. So I wrote about a third of the game in the second person. And then I deleted the whole thing. (laughs) I was like, starting from scratch. And so I rewrote it in the first person and it took a lot of fine tuning of getting the prompts right and the language right. And one of the hard things is like one of the early play tests I did, people were just like, your story is good. And so sometimes I forget I'm reading a game and I just think I'm reading a story and then I read past all the prompts. And I'm like, that's a great compliment, but that's a huge problem for me as a designer. Cause I'm like, I need you to interact with the game. I'm so glad you like the story, but also I need you to play this game. <laughs> and like, that was a very nice problem to have. So I'd had to like be, that's where the visual design and a lot of the more physicality of the book was able to be help me and help like break up the text. So like the text for prompts is formatted differently. There's little iconography, like reminders in the paragraphs where there's a prompt. So if you see them, something's going on. And that kind of like finding those like little solutions to things was very nice and trying to just help guide players through and make sure there wasn't any more stumbling blocks. Yeah, the thing with like auto bio. uh, So I have a... Part of this game is like an extension of like my experience as an installation artist, but also I did an MFA in interdisciplinary studio arts, but specifically game design and like book arts. And so I 
did all this work on like autobiographical art because that's like a thing that's very interesting to me and especially autobiographical game design is very interesting. And so I was like, okay, I have to put myself into this game. And so a lot of it was just like play testing the heck out of my own game a lot because I've just like me, myself as a designer and a player and a lover of solo games, what do I need out of this experience? What is it doing that is really right for me? What is it doing that is just like not hitting those marks? But then also like understanding that Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Me as a designer, there's a really great book called Empathy Engines by Elizabeth Sampet that I recommend a lot of game designers read. For me, especially approaching autobiographical game design and games that want to connect with people, it was really important for me to realize that like, I am a person and I'm an individual. With, like I have connections with other people, I have commonalities on other people, but also there was just a lot of things that are just unique to me and unique experiences to me. And so in first iterations of the game, I was trying to be like, what are universal life experiences? And the reality is that's not a thing. There are a lot of things that a lot of people experience that seem universal, but they, at the end of the day, they're highly specific to you and contextual to what was going on to you at the time. And so trying to treat certain experiences as universal that like if you make them vague enough, everyone should relate to them. You find that not really anyone will connect to them. It's definitely something I've experienced with other games and like art in the past. There's a lot of times where people are like, it's a universal experience. People should understand, everyone should understand this art. And I'm like, I don't. I don't connect to this art. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not part of the universal experience. And so 
in part of understanding autobiography is like, yes, there is a lot of things that people can connect to, but what people tend to connect to is someone's genuine expression of their own experiences because you can find commonality and how someone else experienced something, even if it's not your exact circumstances. So in the case of like experiencing, I think one of the things is just in the game is just like very tense dinners. <laughs> it's just like some people have had those of just like weird, tense, passive aggressive dinners where everyone is just like, chewing on their words as much as they are the food like everyone's experience but like not everyone's experienced that so I was just like I'm just gonna write from what I know and like my own experiences and put that in there and people will be able to connect to the bits and pieces of it because I'm not like putting the whole picture out there as this is a universal experience that everyone knows I'm just like here are the select pieces of me and this experience in this specific memory that you can probably some of these notes are going to hit for you. And so like, that's how I was interested in finding connection with people is just like, try to tell as authentic as an experience as possible. And it's that authenticity and like that really attention to detail and the specificity, specificity of like a memory or an experience is what people will latch on to. Because if you try and be like, very vague, accommodate for every iteration of everything and experience to make it universal. It's just, it's not, I think it honestly, in a lot of things I've seen, it's fallen flat. And so I think it's a really, especially great thing for like designers to just like really put themselves in their game. And like, I know a lot of designers like, well, my experiences are not like other people's experiences. So how will everyone, anyone ever understands like, don't worry, we can figure it out. Uh, people have like really great range of like understanding things outside of themselves. You gotta, you gotta give them some justice. The link to empathy engine on like some, what's some book site. I'll find one. I'll put it out there. I'm trying not to say the <laughs> word Amazon. I will look for another option, but um, there's an ebook on itch. Actually, Oh, great. Great. Yes. Let me just make a little note for that. Ebook on itch. And uh, who is the author one more time? That was Elizabeth Sampat, very good narrative designer and game designer. Get them on the show. It's it's interesting that you talk about like specificity towards the tail end there of walking us through that challenge. And uh, also thank you for being vulnerable uh, about those uh, things. Not, not everyone, you know, wants to talk (laughs) about what was hard sometimes in a public setting. So Thank you. It's interesting to like, this is, there's a lot of things that reading dwellings and talking with you, I feel like I'm leveling up as a, as a designer, (laughs) literally by the second. When I tried to write prompts, I think that is where my mind goes. Universal experience. Like how can I get as many people to like interact with this implicit game mechanic without feeling like, you know, this doesn't represent me or something like that. And I think it's fascinating to go on the extreme other end of the spectrum and go, let me make this as specific to the idea of what I'm trying to create here. And let's see who latches onto that, right? Because I think you can't cast that, you know, maybe it's like the beginner designer fallacy of like, how can I match the D&D experience? Like, how can I get as many individuals to play my game or engage with my game as possible? And I think there's a part of my brain that's slowly transitioning into like, you know what? I actually just want to find the 10 people that will 
interact with this, right? Because they're going to be so supercharged with what's happening here that it'll sort of, I talked about this in an episode with Tracy Barnett in reference to Jeff Stormer, who talks about sort of this marketing. (laughs) This is how I have to do the thing about market funneling and how like, basically you're trying to funnel people from hearing about the thing to talking about the thing or to getting the thing to engaging with the thing to talking about the thing. And basically it's like a, it's a loop de loop of the funnel. And the more people that talk about your game, the more people will hear about your game and thus the cycle like continues to expand. Right. So I think in this sort of operating as creating something as specific as possible to get 10 people who are, fucking ripping jazzed about exploring (laughs) this versus like trying to appease i don't know a thousand people who will like open the first cover and then like never engage with it because they're not feeling any sort of particular connection or it's feeling a little flat for them like what like for me this is just me personally I, i would feel bad about that i would feel about like oh cool this game has gotten like uh 150 purchases and then never again like never won again right whereas if it got 10 purchases and i'm seeing like five purchases every month or you know bi-weekly or weekly whatever that looks like as far as like your relative audiences that feels like way better (laughs) yeah i think that's the thing that i've noticed with my own work and something that i stick to is just like i'm not I have no interest in making like broad, marketable, palatable work. I'm always just like, I do what interests me and whatever my whims are at the moment. But at the end of the day, anything I make is always going to be like a little bit of me in it because of course it's me. I'm making it. I'm not, I, I feel like there's some level that some people feel the need to remove themselves from their work and make it look like here is just a perfect machination of rules and systems that was created out of nothing my name just happens to be in the book and like i i I think that's fine but i think putting yourself into your work and i am a big proponent proponent of being as much on your own bullshit as possible i'm i do that constantly It, it works well for me because like i just like make things that are very interesting to me and create the kind of experiences I want. I found that like with the stroll playing game pack, it's been out for a few years now. And I still occasionally every few months get people tweeting at me being like, this is so cool. I found this and I played these games and I loved it. And I'm like, thank you. Like someone played the game, loved it. And then months later tweeted at me again, being like, I wrote the story from the game and then my brother illustrated it. And I was like, what? this is amazing. Thank you. And it's just like having that very genuine connection and creating something that like people are going to love and will stick with them. I think that to me is more interesting than selling thousands of copies of a game. And like, that's kind of how you get that is just like being really genuine with your art and putting yourself into it and people will be able to find those connections, but then also people because you put yourself into work will connect to you as a designer through your work. And so they don't have to make these leaps between like, Oh, your work. And then you seem like a completely different entity than your work. It's like, I love your games because I like kind of you and your deal. And so it gets people just as you a person. And I think that's also a very rough thing as an artist and people who just create stuff is 
sometimes to have people realize that, hello, I am a person that is making this. I'm not a content machine. I don't crank stuff out. I'm not a faceless like group of people that put out a game. I'm one person that's doing all of this. And you will know because I'm all in this work and I, the way I talk to you and the way I approach things, like I'm one person, this is my work. And so I just really want very human centric design. <laughs> human centric design. Designers come first. Unionize. You <laughs> Rise up, my brothers and sisters. Amazing. I would uh love for a tabletop union. <laughs> so much listen it's been we i've talked to maybe two or three people they're like wow what would a game design union look like oh, look out for max pfeffer's episode but in addition to sort of the the challenges that you experience with the game is there a piece within the game that you're just so proud of maybe like a section of story or a particular actually before no, I want to hear that. I want to hear that before the other thing. I have two things, and then we'll we'll get another some personal stuff. But yeah, what's like something you're really proud of about the designs or the writings of this particular? There's quite a few things on different levels. I try. I'm, I want to like allude to things without it being too spoilery. I'm a huge spoiler baby, and that I don't like things being spoiled for me. I will get over myself, but sometimes I'm like, please just let me enjoy the thing first before you tell me too much about it. So I try to like because I'm the big baby about that. I try to like respect other people's boundaries of like. They want to go in like not knowing anything or knowing as little as possible. One thing that I'm very proud of with this work that I've been very happy about that has come through a lot is just like, well, one that people say it's an immersive experience because I'm just like, that's very cool for a solo game to do that for people and like reading a story and just writing and drawing to like have that level of immersion. That doesn't surprise me because in a lot of research I've done to, in designing solo games, immersion is possible, but it's very funny and like how you interpret immersion because the reality with solo games is you are playing that entirely in your head. So that was also a big thing of like how I viewed designing this game is like okay 80 percent of play is not people writing or drawing it's in their head as they're reading as they're thinking as they're remembering even after they're done playing that's why dwelling has an epilogue because there's been times where i've played really long solo games and i got really into it and then it just kind of abruptly ends and i'm like what do I do with myself? It's like that feeling when you finish a book and you don't know what to do with yourself anymore. And you're just kind of like, I'm lost. I am, I'm, I'm out at sea now and I don't know what to do with myself. So I wanted to have something that kind of like eases players out of the interactive experience back into the narrative, into a way that kind of gives it some level of like finality after the conclusion of the game. So it's just like the game ended and here's a little bit about what happens after to kind of just ease you back into reality. That's also a part of how the game is cyclical because it eases you into the game and then it eases you out of it because it's meant to be replayed because it's a looping game. That's also a thing that I'm happy that worked well. Having people say that like the game is just like noting the, like the consideration and the care that's in the game is really nice to me because I have thought a lot about this game. I put a lot of work and research and it like iteration into this game. So having people be like, yeah, this is a game that like, it's a horror game, but it's also, it's a horror game that really cares for its players. And part of that is the safety tools that 
I designed for it, which I really like those. There is a specific, like I, all my safety tools. So there's two safety tools. It's the key a bookmark, which is just like a nice little way of like checking in with yourself. And it gives you like different examples of thought processes, how you might be feeling emotionally or how you might be feeling physically because of different breakdowns of like kind of seeing where you're at, if you might be enjoying the game, if it's kind of a neutral experience or you're not enjoying it. So, you know, if you're not enjoying it, you can take the key and you could lock the book by putting it in the book, close it, and it's, it'll, it'll be locked and you can come back and unlock it when you're ready to come to it. And that's the thing that I like about it. And there's also the keyhole cards, which is like a very fun way of, I'm so happy so many people are stoked about them. My playtesters had a fun time with them and they really liked that them. Was, that was my next, that's the next, like these two things are the things I want to, let's go, I'm sorry, I just wanted to, I'm also yeah. so excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, so the way the keyhole cards work is it's a big card that just shows a lock and it actually has the keyhole of the lock cut out so it's a window and the card is almost as big as the pages of the book. So you put it over and it blocks out most of the page of the book. And so the way it functionally works is if there are decently, I would say pretty robust content warnings at the back of the book about everything the game poses towards you as like content that you might be engaging kind of like the emotional memory based stuff but also like how it asks you to engage with those so be like okay maybe i might be okay with this reading it but if it makes me think about it i don't want to do it so you don't have to do it and so what happens is if you decide you don't want to do it and you use the keyhole card so you place it over the page and it gives you this little window like as if you were peeking through a keyhole into a room and so there's alternate prompts in the back of the book and how you engage with that room based on if you were peeking through the keyhole so you're not entering the room you don't meet the ghost that's in that room you don't have that memory recollection instead you just kind of get a glimpse so through the keyhole you'll draw the glimpse of what you see in the room and then you'll kind of just speculate of what you think is in there. And then you'd be like, ah, I mark myself lucky that I didn't go into this room. And so that's a good way of like continuing kind of like themes with like haunted houses is sometimes haunted houses have really spooky locked doors that maybe you're just okay with them staying locked. And that was kind of the way of like narratively and thematically, I wanted safety to be built into the game. And so like the fact that it never detracted from play, it never felt clunky. Some people used it just cause, and they're like, it was so fun just cause like I didn't even need them, but I just wanted to try them out and it was really fun. So that makes me really happy. Cause I was just like trying to think of, I love horror stuff and I love horror things. And I, I want to prioritize safety and stuff in games, but also sometimes with games and especially solo games that, or like get into a headspace and really think about stuff in yourself in the past. Like sometimes you can have a not fun time with those. And so I just kind of wanted to give people the ability to like take a breather and be like, nah, I'm not engaging with that now. And I'm going to just, instead I'm just going to peek. I'm going to take a little peek in this room and be like, nah, and then move on to the next room. So that was a very fun way of like putting that care and consideration through the safety tools. Um, yeah. And so like people have pointed out to me like, yeah, the, it very clearly comes that like you care for the player through the way you design this game and you want to make sure people have a good time with it. And I'm like, thank you. That makes me very happy because I do. Because <laughs> like I've had times playing solo games where it's just like suddenly it's just like 
content warnings are very vague or not at all. And then you're just kind of like sitting there and you're just like, I don't know how to engage with this. And then you kind of get frustrated because you're like, I don't know how to engage with this. So I don't know how to go forward. And you kind of just putter out. And like, that's a, that happens sometimes and it's fine. But I wanted to be able to like, for myself, think about those experiences that I had with games and what would have worked for me to keep me playing a game and not having to like feel like I was missing out or feel like I was just skipping over chunks and like would have kept me involved in the game. So that way of like keeping the narrative going, keeping the same play mechanics happening, but just in a different way was a very fun way to do that. And another thing I'm proud of with this game is I have, there is some very gross writing in there. I've done some, I've been told I did some very good horror writing. And so that makes me also very happy, which also makes me happy that I did the safety tools very good because there are some gross parts in it that some people were like, I'm glad I wasn't eating lunch when I read this part. And I'm like, sorry, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's a very nice compliment to me. Yeah. The the next thing I was going to talk about was the, the keyhole mechanics and sort of your own unique. It's so fascinating when we get into the conversation of safety tools, because there's a lot of like general ones that people often slot into like their actual plays or their home groups or things like that. But you can't, it's really hard to use like an XNO card system or red light green, you know, system when you're playing by yourself, right? So yeah, I think it's really fascinating, both in a conversation of like, what do safety tools look like for solo games, but also what potentially are like safety tools people could design for their games specifically, right? Like just going beyond yeah. using other people's tools, like the rewind system or, or I'm sorry, the scene system or like X card things. It's like what, what actually could be more resonant for your personal game? Cause not only will you create something that maintains the play experience of the game. Although I guess in some cases on the opposite end, someone could, could argue with the fact of like, well, to use something different that is not immersive for a group style game does bring like the play experience to a stop. Yeah. Right? Like if it's not, yeah. oh, everyone's like ejected. So that's, I would totally write that as a pros, yeah. like using someone else's tools. But I also think there's something really like mind tickling about, is that a thing? <laughs> mind tickling. Where am I? Where? I don't know. It just, it, it feels more wholesome it feels more empathetic in that you really care about this game and you also really care about someone's experience of this game to not just slap in someone else's safety tool to design something specific for your game for your players on their character sheets or in the book proper or on some sort of like ephemera or artifact that you use throughout the game, a token or something like that, I think is just very fascinating as I sit here and sort of absorb what you've been talking about. Yeah. Well, with solo games, it's a little bit tricky with safety tools because you're only accountable to yourself. Like it's not like in group play where people can check in with each other. If they, if you see someone having a, like they're maybe not as attentive or they seem not okay or whatever. 
um, with that is just like, if you are playing a game by yourself and like truly like by yourself, you're having your own time and like in your room playing a game, you are on your own. You're only accountable to yourself. And so I wanted to kind of be cognizant of that, of like, okay, how, how do I give people the best tools to check in with themselves and be involved with the story in the game that like forefronts themselves and like make sure that they're checking themselves. And that's a part of like why the key is like, it's a physical thing that you can put next to you while you play. So you can always like look at it and just kind of be like, Oh, am I thinking that? Am I feeling that? Cause like having that level of like checking in with yourself, sometimes you don't realize you're feeling bad because I know there's definitely been times when I've been playing games in the past to be like, oh, I'm not really feeling this anymore. I'm not having a good time or maybe I'm not feeling great. And you just kind of be like, want to shrug it off or be like, oh, whatever, I'll just push through and I'll finish the game. And not that it like always like causes harm or whatever, but sometimes it just like, it just ends up having not a fun experience of the game because you just like pushed yourself through an experience that you weren't feeling. And so even from a standpoint of like, if you're just not feeling it, I would rather you just take a break. And I want to be able to like life hack without you having to take a DBT course, kind of give you some skills to like here on a bookmark is how you check in with yourself, how you're feeling. And if you need to take breaks, because at the end of the day, I just want you to have a good time with this game and not feel like you have to like push through it to finish it in one session or push through it to just finish it at all. Um, or do things and engage with it just cause it's there. Like, and if you don't do a certain prompt, then you're missing out or you're missing part of the story or the game. I wanted to always like give players options to just kind of go at their own pace and do things their own way. And so solo games are hard with that because it's like hard to anticipate anything that could ever happen in a game. I tried to like, I would like to like, is there a way I can do this? No, there is no way I can anticipate anyone's reactions to any of my games. And like, there's like definitely like a learning experience with like play testing. There's like things that there's some rooms that I thought would be fine. And then there's like one specific room that actually got cut. I cut it from the game because I was like, I'm just not going to put this in here. That one playtester had a rough time with it. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, I had to like stop after this and then come back to it. And I was just like, oh, whoa. And like, that's also like a part of like writing things that are like autobiographical is like, if you put too much of yourself into a game and it's content that maybe is not fun and it really reaches people, that's not ideal of like someone else now having a kind of tangential bad time. So yeah, I, there's no way I can anticipate everything, but I kind of just wanted to give as much agency to the player to make the decisions for themselves, what they want to do, how they want to play the game. Because I think safety tools are very important in games. I've All games I've played, I've played with safety tools. And I've definitely, I have a lot of like, thoughts on how safety tools interact with games i think it's very good that a lot of them are outside of the game experience and they help like halt play i think some of them are not good tools for the kinds of games that you're playing or maybe even the kinds of people you're playing with because i know at least it's with some friends i've played with in the past the x card doesn't work for them because they don't feel comfortable like reaching out and touching the card or having to pick up the car- a card and show it to me 
if something goes on because like if they're not feeling good they kind of just freeze up so like i've with those friends i actually have a series of winks (laughs) that i do with them when i when i've run games of if you're if i wink at you and you're feeling good and you wink back i know you're feeling good but if i wink at you and you don't if i'm just keep winking at you and you're not winking back i know that we need to and that's like a subtle enough thing i maybe look ridiculous if i'm winking a lot but (laughs) i'm fine with looking ridiculous if i'm winking a lot it's just like a different way to like accommodate people's needs like there is some level that like safety tools and safety needs to be like a play culture thing and it needs to be like a conversation that you have with your group and with your things but i think there's also a way that like if you think about your your game and what you're making you there is some level that you can think about what would work for this game of like what do you like what are safety tool right safety tools that i recommend or if you feel up to designing your own that's very cool i i don't i don't know i i did it but i don't know if i would go and say everyone has to do this but yeah i think there's different ways it's just like understanding different levels of interaction with a game is very important and kind of just trying your best to accommodate how those manifest. I think ultimately all I have to really say at the end of this is what, what a goddamn triumph this game is. (laughs) What an absolute fucking goddamn triumph. The link for the Kickstarter will be down below in the show notes for everyone to get, get the, Get the game back. The game. Go find the game. Get the game again. Buy it twice. Buy it for a friend. Gift it to somebody. Seb, we're in like the lightning round half of the show. Let's let's oh. see. Let's see some connection things. The first bit of this is, is trends. So yeah. what are you seeing in your communities? What are you hearing in your communities? What are you reading in your communities? T- Twitter, Discord, Facebook groups, personal groups. What's some stuff that's like keeps popping up? They're like, oh, that's really interesting. Or, you know, is there something that you're seeing in the scene that you're feeling is being detractful that you want to caution people against? And then, or a third option, is there a trend within yourself that you would like to speak into the ether for someone to just listen to, grab, and run away with it? Oh, okay. I mean, as larger things, I think there definitely is like a trend of more solo games, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. as of necessity of how we play right now, which honestly has been nice for me of, <laughs> I like to design solo games. And so I love having more games to read and look at and see how people are approaching, approaching solo games. So that's very cool of just like these different like ways people think about it. Solo games are very interesting to me because it really gets you a good insider information into someone's brain at what they think constitutes a game. It's like, is game, is game dice is game story yeah it's just like what they forefront of like a player to have an experience on their own and solo games are a really great way to learn more about specific designers that you like it's just like by playing their games that they 
make for just specifically one person because you kind of just kind of can see what people forefront as like what is the most interesting experience in a game based on how that is like high random high like random tables high random like iterative works of like what you can make in a game or tell a story so like i love the, the trend of a lot of people making like map making games i'm I personally, sometimes when I try to play them, I get to a point where I'm like, I, I just don't want to make a map anymore. <laughs> I'm just like, there, there's other things I'm getting distracted by. I'm like creating stories in my mind about this world. And, and I, I don't, I just want to write about it. And I don't want to finish this map. But yeah, it's just like interesting to see what people are most interested in as designers kind of being condensed down as solo games and like, the level of like interaction with like a game with other ephemera. I think that's a trend that I don't, it's slowly happening, but I, I think it should happen more is I think people should just make weirder games that use other things. <laughs> like I love like the trend of like, Oh, games with Jenga towers. I love that. I, I love things like that's a great way to have like some sort of feeling like of it being random intention. But I just definitely would love games that like, play with the physical format of what games are more i would love games that just like really encourage people to get weird with how they play a game outside of just like here's a bunch of cards and here's a bunch of dice and here's things that you do like i would be really interested in just what other people can like incorporate of like what people might have in their homes or as they're out and about interact and make it sort of into like a game experience i like that stuff (laughs) I I also agree that there's a lot of there's a huge rise in like the want for the solo game, solo journaling, solo prompting, like whatever sort of division of the solo game is existing in here. I recently spoke with Gian Shim, who is a big designer of like Keepsake and journaling yeah, games. Yeah, I really like their games, and especially the recent game they also made with Shingin Core. Yep. I, Love Ching's work. Been a big fan of their art for a long time. And I like these like kind of like keepsake games. Mm-hmm. I really like these things that you like when you have a game, you end with something. I really like that. Because like I know when I did a lot of research for some games, like if anything left me with more than just like a few pages in a notebook, I was like, I'm blown away. I'm enraptured by this game. I love this. I have a thing now. I have a thing now. And this was a triumphant experience. And so like I love things that kind of help people maybe rethink mundane objects, rethink how they interact with a game, interact with an experience. And like creating things is a really great way to do that. I love any game that makes you create things. Or sometimes I do like games where you destroy things. I have made one of those. I, For sustainability reasons, I don't encourage much of the destroying ones. That's a bit harder. <laughs> if you want to destroy things, you could do that, but... <laughs> There's, I had a, it's funny that you mentioned destroying games, just like a mind tangent. I had Raph D'Amico, uh, D'Amico on here a while back and in his game, The Zone, a lot of the like design principle is the concept of like self-destruction and how that sort of creates, we, we got into a, a conversation about how growing as a person is technically putting self-destruction on yourself, right? Because when you change 
when you change your morals, when you change your values, when you change like where you live or, or who you're interacting with, you're sort of destroying things. You're destroying relationships with people. You're destroying like concepts that you had or that, that blanketed your worldview. You're destroying sort of like, you're destroying your sense of like selfishness or something like that when you try to be more empathetic or altruistic. Right. So I think there's, uh, I guess, what a dangerous thing for me to bring up because I'm like, yeah, I would love to see more solo destroying games, but on the, you know, on the same warning as Seb has pointed out, you know, we can only do that so much. And uh, yeah, I, I made a very, as part of at my MFA, I made a project that it was a very limited edition zine that the way that you played the game is through destroying it. And at the end you had to destroy the game. And so now it doesn't exist anymore because all copies have been destroyed. <laughs> and so like, that's great. That was like meant to be like a very ephemeral experience. It also was very fun because it got to make a game feel like performance art where I, when I destroyed a zine in front of my whole class and they were not expecting that. <laughs> So that was very fun. Yeah, I love that. That's a very interesting thought of changing as a person is destroying yourself. I would not view it as that, but that's an interesting. I have maybe a more sad or worse take on that. But do you do you want do you want to take it? Oh well, like well, the funny thing is like one of the things that kind of connects with dwelling and how I, I, I view some of those things is like, I don't think as you change as a person, you necessarily destroy past selves, but I think your past selves die. <laughs> and you will always be carrying, you will always have like, essentially like, I have like a little sh- short twine game about this, about like being haunted about past ghosts of yourself. And I, I like, cause that's also like a thing of my research into done research into autobiography and hauntology and the idea that every time you write about yourself, you're creating a new ghost. Cause I've always thought of like, that's an interesting thing of like, I've never felt like there's always been me, but it's just been different versions of me, but they're always just like, it's not a person. It's not a me that exists anymore. There's a, there's me's out there that are dead now. <laughs> they are ghosts and I carry them with me. I'm haunted by myself. And so it always stays with me. And like, like ghosts, they still exist in other people's mind. It still exists. It haunts other people, but it's not gone. Those past parts of myself are not gone. I'm haunted by myself constantly and who I was and who I continue to be. I'm constantly making ghosts. Did you, <laughs> did you just tap into the fourth dimension? Like, did you? Act, I'm not like joking. Did you like actually discover right now in this moment as well beforehand, but now explaining it to me, is this the fourth dimension? Did you get, <laughs> did you find out how to capture time inside of writing? That's amazing. What I, I think it's, I think it's another, I'm having an existential crisis slowly right this second. <laughs> I'm um, so sorry. No, it's fine. I live for them. Like break me. I don't know, but what an interesting way to think about like how you change as a person. I think, and this is speaking mainly to like the American culture is like growth is a combination of like status and space you take up and like what your versions of success are. And they're all, what I'm saying, they're all very positive. Like they're, they're all very positive in their manifestations. I am really attracted to these ideas of growth on the negatives. And not, I don't mean like in a way that is 
damaging to you as a person. Like this is not a conversation about like being self-destructive or self-annihilative in a fashion that is like endangering your life or the lives of people you care about, or maybe even people you don't know, like not endangering people, but this concept of like destroying these pieces of yourself or pieces of you that die and become ghosts or like, I, I think I like yours a lot more <laughs> mainly because of the remnant that is your past self because it's when you destroy some when I think when I think about destroying something I think about its removal its non-existence and I think with the concept of like creating something and dying uh, or creating something and having a piece of you die in that moment it's still around the tombstone is still there that that essence or energy is still present in that in that creation of that thing it's almost like you're creating the loop of creation and destruction in that moment which yeah is really really fascinating this is getting super philosophical <laughs> for me and i love it but yeah so it, the only reason i'm so fascinated by it is because i've been thinking a lot i play a lot of trad adventure games so like I played D&D with people. I've uh, gotten hit to this game called Emberwind, which is like a sort of not well-known crunchier system. You know, I've read 13th Age. I'm attracted to fourth edition D&D. So I like the trad adventure stuff. And I've been thinking a lot about like, what does a system agnostic class look like? Or what does a setting agnostic class look like? In this game that I'm writing, I've kind of written the classes to be like forms of legacy. So like, this is also hyped from Final Fantasy XIV, where in Final Fantasy XIV, <laughs> when you're when you take on a job, which is different from your class, <laughs> that's a whole thing. You get this crystal. It's like it's like Soul of the Warrior or Soul of the Paladin, right? And it's supposed to contain all of the warriors who came before you, or all of the paladins who came before you and held this crystal and like uh, succeeded throughout history. And so I, I find it very interesting that like to examine class as a lineage. It's also like sort of different legends about Excalibur and how it has all of the memories of past kings who live with inside it that help guide you as the new king. Anyways, this is all to say that like, it's very, this concept of like ghost as previous life of yourself and sort of using that to guide your future experiences or your future choices is very fascinating as both like a life concept, but also as like, a setting or content or narrative concept as well. I think it's, I think it's a very cool, what a unique brain you have, Seth. Thank you. I think it comes from a a place that I am. I am a very death positive person and I don't, I, I don't shy away from that. Probably why I deal with like a lot of morbid things and I write games about ghosts, but yeah, I've definitely viewed that like sense of like self in the past of like, I kind of view past selves. They, there are parts of me that have died that have decayed. And then the new me grew out of it. There's still, if you think about molecules, atoms, the components of what it was, it's still there. It's just in a different form. And like, I always have like, remember like memories of, the many different kinds of people I have been in the past. I think that's for me at least is important to hold on to that. Like I I feel like as much as you maybe want to destroy, I know I deleted my MySpace page. I there's parts of my past that I have destroyed and I don't want to remember, but I do remember what it was like to be a teenager and on MySpace. And it's just like, I think it's important to have 
to like hold on to that and not lose too many parts of yourself. Cause there's lessons learned in those like cycles of like improving yourself and becoming a different person of just like, always remember who you were previously. So you can continuously iterate on yourself. <laughs> it's good. It's good juice. It's the best <laughs> juice as, as a, like a, I have to make a note for myself, but as an off mic aside, where are my fucking stamps? 135. There's a book that my partner got while in Columbus called, I think it's called Into Attorney. One second. This might be a, a collector's cover, but it's it's called From Here. This is fucking mirror. Oh, uh, I want Kate, to read that book. Caitlin Doty. It, I think, you know, I don't, I'm trying, we can have a whole conversation about how we can appreciate uh, and be like it, not into death. That's what a weird phrasing, but like <laughs> to, to not be so terrified of death, not only for ourselves, but like other people around us. And like, I think that America has such a, such a disconnect to the concept of like accepting that we are mortal. Right. I think actually America has quite the opposite issue in trying to be immortal <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. And that's my own intuitions, but it's a, a beautiful book and I highly recommend it seems like it's on your radar, but I highly recommend the read. It's very cool. Yeah. It's been one that I've been wanting to read for a while. I actually occasionally watch her YouTube channel. <laughs> That's what I heard. A uh, Tony, uh, Tony Facinda with plus one XP has also been a really big Caitlin fan and yeah. watches a lot of their YouTube stuff. A- anyways, thank you for, thank you for uh, <laughs> humoring me in that moment. Last little bit here. Seb is, let me write the time staff of coming back in, 137. Last bit here, and then we will get you some food. I don't know, you you might be hungry. <laughs> I'm making assumptions. I'm good. But this is sort of the tip section, the TLDR sort of, if someone wants to scrub through and give me all of that listen time and didn't want just wants a nice juicy quick tip. I think my question for you is when thinking about these immersive experiences what are like the three main considerations you take on and you can pull from like your your schooling background video games whatever have you because it's all design at the end of the game that at the end of the day that feeds into this Mm -hmm. what are some like top three considerations that you would make when you start a project like this, or when you start doing research for a project like this and feel free to include like any books or articles or resources. I know that we already have the empathy engine mentioned in the show notes, but anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's a good one of just kind of understanding the frame of creating for others. But when it comes to like immersive experiences, I think For me, the most important things are you have to be able to visualize what the end point is before, like, as you're even as you're starting. Like, it can change as it gets there, but being able to, like, understand the end point in, like, a holistic approach of, like, this is how it will all be experienced in a bunch of different ways. That's very hard. And so sometimes you kind of just have to break it down in a lot of different ways because with immersive things, 
I find there needs to be a level of like flow and cohesiveness to everything. Things don't need to be like absolutely perfect. Things don't need to be hot, like highly detailed or if it's enough things together that go together well, that's a thing that like, it just really helps like making an experience something lovely. Cause like with like camping, it's just like, it's a low poly game. It's, this is not in any way a realistic recreation of walking around in nature, especially because the sky is pink. But it's just like I thought about how the visuals of the game looked with the sounds that you're hearing as you're playing it. And then also, I guess I do a sensory approach of like, what are all your senses and how are they engaged right now? Maybe, hopefully not taste and smell with games but maybe taste and smell with games a new frontier but like yeah like what are you touching what are you seeing what are you hearing maybe what are you smelling and 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 tasting right now (laughs) if you're eating things while you're playing a game um for me it's like in this small tent game what are you not smelling the body odor of everyone on the convention floor right now because you're in a nice little tent and you're free for that for five minutes. So I, yeah, I tend to do a lot of sense-based approach for those kind of things. With dwelling, it was how can everything like thematically go together as much as possible to create this immersive experience? So I'm like, how do I write about it that feels like a first-person recounting of being in a haunted house. How do the illustrations kind of give that vibe of I'm reading a story about a haunted house? How do you interact with things that what the game asks you to do and like interaction mechanics, how does that kind of lead in thematically of feeling like, Oh, this is a spooky game having a spooky experience and trying to lead you through the story. It's just like, how do you guide people as much as possible by like giving them a little bit of everything so that it's all enough? Like you don't have to like surround sound level of like account for everything. I think if you get on a bunch of different levels enough of like all the different ways someone could interact with something, that's how you can get that level of immersion of just like sit down and think. I One thing I do all the time is I analyze what my experiences and reactions to things of like how things feel immersive. So like in a game, what about it made me feel immersive? Like it's some level of like, okay, the layout of even the book and how it's designed helped me think in the frame of mind of the kind of like story I'm writing or the game I'm playing or just like it, all that can kind of tie together in a lot of different ways to like, guide people to a singular endpoint of like that's the like little bubble of the experience of the game and so there's a lot of different things that you can do that can lead people there and you don't have to nail all of them but it's just like getting enough to just and then that'll help like just guide people there i'm gesturing a lot with my hands right now (laughs) oh you're you're muted still (laughs) Sorry, the button is heavier than it looks on this. Goddamn. Yeah, so sort of like to sort of sum up what we've heard here, at least what what I'm understanding, just to make sure we're on the same page. You know, what does the end goal of the experience look like for the person who's going to engage with this? Consider the senses of the fiction and how you translate those things to 
people and, you know, new frontier of sense and uh, smell and taste, figure it out and then analyze and sort of record what the specific interactions that uh, culminate your personal experience in the immersion from whatever piece of media you're and seeing if seeing if those things are replicatable in your own projects. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. First of all, figure out smell and taste. Is that, wasn't yeah. there snozberries, right? Like figure out the wallpaper, <laughs> tasteable wallpaper. I'm going to gag. Someone licks my dusty ass wall. Uh, I mean, I can, I'll try and figure out like scratch and sniff games. Yeah. That yeah. sounds awful, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> what does a gelatinous cube smell like? You tell me. Uh, oh, is it just lime gelatin? Anyways thoughts for another day. That's my, that's my fantasy cookbook. Get ready for that. But yeah. And, and I think this might be my personal train of thought. And I think that you also slightly feel this way as well Is that like understanding what the end result of a project is, I think is, and like you said, it can be malleable. That can change as you start to iterate on things and switch, like sort of pivot the experience. But I think having sort of an, an initial end goal really helps save you the headache of meandering or wandering yeah. or like getting to a dead end and then sort of giving up in a way, because I think that can happen. Yeah. That's more likely to occur when you're like, man, I don't even know like the forest for the trees, right? Like I can't see <laughs> where the fuck I'm going right now. There's mist and fog <laughs> and like, I don't even have a map, right? I think, I think for this analogy, the map is really important and there are a lot of different ways to get to the little hobble inside of the mountain. But you know, your goal is the little hobble inside of the mountain, unless you find that you don't need the cheese that's created there, then you can sort of <laughs> pivot and go to the caves that are under and getting the cabbages that grow in the darkness. <laughs> Is this a picture that I'm painting for you, listener? Go ahead and tell me which one you went to go get. And what's also, Rand, I had Randy Lubin on here a while back who does a lot of like LARP and sort of physicality style games and figures out those experiences and those immersions. And one of the things that he really like brings to the table when he starts designing something is he watches his play groups and, and looks for the most heightened experience and then captures that and iterates on that experience. Right. Because he's like, okay, if this is what resonates with people when they execute my game, how can I make that happen again and again? How can I bring those things closer together and kind of cut away the, you know, the shop, I, I don't know, this, me, I am i don't like the shopping episode of any D&D game. I'm not a fan. So how can we minimize shopping? Is that like, is that an out of session thing we all do? Like, hey, you all have gold at the end of this session, text me what you want, and we'll put it in your character sheets, right? Is that a way to do that? And sort of bringing all those resonant experiences together. So in solo games, if you're finding that these moments are resonant for you in horror stories or adventure stories or or romances if that's like a dating sim also is there a solo game dating sim there probably is but like i've not heard of a solo game there has to be there has to be a dating (laughs) sim one i don't know where it is but i would love to get the person on here who's created but if it's not out there and you haven't seen it 
that's a free idea. You don't have to pay me. But you know, what are those heightened moments that you're experiencing in those solo games? Because those might be the heightened experiences. Those might be something to point towards or capture when you're trying to translate that both both capture, transcribe, and translate those things to the person who's engaging with your yeah. experience. Yeah. I have a, like a, a very funny concept with game design. I'm not going to explain it in full now. I, I gave a short talk about it before for like DMG for like a game jam. But a great way to understand like what is the coolest thing for players and like how do you focus on that? I have an approach to things called the reverse Vin Diesel because <laughs> if you are a game designer, I please watch all of the Chronicle of Riddick movies because that he is a player character. He is a player character in a game and watch it. I've watched, I love the movies. If you watch it, you will see the choices that players make because they're cool, because they're big, because it makes them feel important or make, or it puts them in danger. The plot is kind of funky at times, but it's because that's like a player driven narrative. And like, it's just a movie that's built up of the biggest, coolest things that you can do that makes you feel like a badass. The nat and that's 20 what those on movies the are. The nat- 20 on the cup (laughs) yeah and so like that's a fun way like a different part of media to just be like what things what are the things that make people most immersed in their character most immersed in the game feel big and important and a big hero chronicles of riddick (laughs) that is a great example of like when a player character feels that because those movies are actually out of his tabletop games oh he's done other movies to fund those those movies what? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, he's a huge tabletop player. Vin well, Diesel loves tabletop games. I know what I'm watching tonight. Also, Vin <laughs> Diesel, come on the show. Would love to have you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think in tandem with what you said way earlier about being specific in your design and also like going gonzo about the there's a thing in acting for anyone who doesn't know you i went to uh acting school for a very small amount of time theater theater stuff but it's one of the phrasings that we use is always easier to take away it's really hard to give someone more and basically what that means is like when you're acting on stage and you're sort of like a contained character you're not providing a lot of body language like the person in the back row has no idea what's going on because they either have to be able to hear you or they have to be or i'm sorry and when they hear you they have to be able to sense through your tone what's going on but the other bit of it is like they need to be able to see your body language from 200 rows back and if they can't do that they're missing the point like and it's not their fault it's our fault as translating so we say like it's always easier to go bigger because it's easier to maintain control when you rein that stuff in versus like getting someone to like getting someone to come out of their comfort zone or getting someone to come out of their sort of limitations box is a barrier that is possible. I think there are people who could break their barriers on stage all the time, but that is a much longer journey than maybe like the Mm -hmm. six weeks you have to rehearse this Romeo and Juliet and you can't get like Romeo to look at Juliet Juliet lovingly also what a terrible example for me to bring up about the difference (laughs) in age of these two characters and how that's not a great story I'm sorry but that's the first thing that came to mind but 
Yeah, it's it's I think it's about being specific and being big and then letting people play with the specific and big and seeing what those reactions are. And then you can start to like trim away. And instead of the other version where like you start vague and small and you don't know where to go because the, the players or people who are iterating on your product or content can't always give you the best ideas. They don't know maybe exactly what you're going for in those instances either. So like you'll feel frustrated and like, Oh, they just don't get it. Maybe you didn't, Maybe potentially you didn't give them enough. I, you know, maybe it's yeah. both ways, but maybe potentially you didn't give them enough. I, I think those are really. I think bringing up Chronicles of Riddick, like I can remember almost every. <laughs> I watched Chronicles of Riddick when I was shit. When did that movie come out? I was like ten, ten or eleven. So like, I remember almost scene by scene what happens in that goddamn movie, and like <laughs> there is no slowdown. Like nothing stops happening. What a crazy yeah, because that's a, that's someone who is not interested in taking rests unless they are forced to, <laughs> yeah. and just like really just wants the best parts of everything, which is a lot of action mm-hmm. or just like the interpersonal stuff that's more interesting to them. They're not interested in like the space travel part, or they're not interested about. They just want to get to the prison that's on a sun. <laughs> <laughs> or that's on a planet that's so close to a sun that it's on fire occasionally. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Great tips. Everyone, please take them. They're so good. I am changing. <laughs> I'm changing in this moment. And I am also dying. With that, Seb, last plugs. Once again, let them know where they can reach you, contact you, hire you, where they can get your stuff. Thanks. Yeah, I am. Uh, I have... Dwelling, which is the game that I've been talking about that's on Kickstarter right now, which will be linked. Don't have to say the whole link. But I'm also on Twitter at smallghost. That's S-M-O-L ghost. And through there, I have like linked to a card, which is like how you can get in contact me with me if you want to work with me or you want to talk about the game or any other games. If you have that solo dating game, please hit me up. We would <laughs> both love to know about this. Uh, I love date. I love dating games, so I would love to play that. And it also links to my itch where you can find uh, like my interactive fiction and my di- digital works that I've done that I've talked a bit about and also all the tabletop games I've done before this. Yeah, that's pretty most mostly where I'm existing is Twitter. Great. Perfect. Twitter uh, and Kickstarter is only where I exist right now. <laughs> You can only perceive not even in real life. Yeah, this is just a shell that I'm using to communicate an AI that I'm (laughs) using to communicate with you. I am the AI ghost also ghosts and cyberpunk. Anyways, that has been the uh, this we're at the top of the show. Thank you everyone for hanging out with Seb and I we really appreciate it. I I have learned a ton and I've gone through a crisis in the middle of this. I hope that you have too. (laughs) in a good way in a good way in an absolutely good way. But we will See you next time. Say bye to the people, Seb. Bye. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) All right. That's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Seb and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Seb or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.